Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Would you pray with me? Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, our Heavenly Father, whose word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word this morning and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing unto your majesty. We pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Well, welcome. Good morning. The time has finally come. The day that you've been fearing for a very long time. You've had nightmares. You've woken up in cold sweats in the middle of the night. Happy that it was just a dream. But yes, it is here. The time has come. I'm preaching a sermon series. (laughs) That's right. Strap in uh, for six weeks of pure, unadulterated, undiluted Bible. (laughs) So what will this series be about? Well, before we start kind of digging into the text this morning, I want to just give you a quick um, idea of where we're going to be going in this series. Um, Well, last summer, we did a, a short series through the life of King David. And so this, this summer, we're going to be continuing um, with the life of Solomon, the life of King Solomon. Now, Solomon in the Bible is really a figure larger than life. Um, even outside the Bible, there's, there's all these conspiracy theories and things like this. He's, he's gone down in history as a figure larger than life. Not only are there many stories about Solomon in the Bible, but there's many books in the Bible that he probably wrote. Uh, and, and, and looking at all of the material about Solomon, there's no possible way we could cover it in six weeks. So what we're going to be doing is focusing on his life. Um, and, and we're going to be doing that by, by focusing on the book of 1 Kings. Really, the, the first 11 chapters is where we find the story of the rise and fall of King Solomon from, from glory to the grave. So we're going to be following his life from his most glorious moments to his death. And that is what we're going to see. We're going to witness this morning Solomon's glorious rise to the throne of Israel. And over the next few weeks, we're going to hear his boundless wisdom. We're going to watch him construct the world-famous temple. We're going to hear him pour out his heart in prayer before God. And lastly, we're going to watch in horror as his reign ends in sin, idolatry, and failure. We'll see Solomon in his greatest glory all the way down to his greatest sins. We'll see Solomon lead the kingdom into prosperity, and we'll see Solomon lead the kingdom into idolatry. Now, that may sound exciting, it may sound boring, but I can assure you this, the story of Solomon found in the scriptures is about much more than just Old Testament ancient history. 
In fact, as Christians, the story of Solomon, as well as the entire Old Testament, is extremely relevant to our daily lives. So before we jump into 1 Kings, I want to answer the question of why. Why should we care about the Old Testament? Why should we care about 1 Kings? And ultimately, why should we care about Solomon? Well, first, we should care because the Old Testament is the God-breathed words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture. So Paul is talking here specifically to Timothy about all of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is just as inspired as the New. It is just as relevant as the New. So if you believe the New Testament is God's word, then you have to believe the Old Testament is God's word as well, according to the Apostle Paul and the very words of scripture. So that's the first reason. It's profitable. Second, we should care because the Old Testament teaches us how to live. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things, speaking of the Old Testament, happened to them as, a, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. In other words, they were written down so that we might learn. The things that happen in the Old Testament are examples for us. In fact, earlier in that same chapter, Paul says that the Old Testament stories are also given to us as warnings that we may not do evil as they did. So they give us good examples and bad examples to learn how to live our lives, how to handle and deal and live under God. So that's the second one. They, they warn us and give us instruction for life. Third, we should care because the Old Testament gives us hope. Paul writes this in Romans 15, verse 4. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Again, he's speaking of the Old Testament. So that's the pattern. Through understanding what was written in what we call the Old Testament, we are encouraged and through that gain hope. Why? Because the Old Testament stories are stories of God's goodness and faithfulness. And the more we come to know God's goodness and faithfulness, the more we come to hope in him. So that's the third reason. It gives us hope. Fourthly and finally, we should care because the Old Testament points to, prefigures, and prophesies about Christ. Jesus himself taught his disciples this. You remember the story of the two disciples on the road to, well, that's four, two disciples on the road. That was one for, for, for each of you. Uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So it happens in Luke 24. Uh, and so two, two of the disciples are walking down the road to Emmaus by themselves. Now this is after the resurrection. Or, sorry, it is after the resurrection, but it's before they really have seen Christ or anything. So they're not sure what they believe. And Jesus appears to them. He just comes up walking beside them. And for some reason, they don't recognize that it's him. So they just start talking to him. And they begin to tell Jesus about all that's happened. How, how this man, Jesus, they've been following died. And, and how they're not sure what's going to happen next. But they've heard some people say that he, he appeared to them after he died. And they're kind of confused. Now listen to Jesus' response to them. Again, this is in Luke 24, verse 25. He says, and he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets 
have spoken. So he doesn't say, you're so slow to believe what your friends said. He said, you're so slow to believe what the prophets have spoken before. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, he says, you should have known that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things because of what Moses and the prophets and all the Old Testament has to say about me. The Old Testament speaks much of Christ. In fact, when Jesus encountered the Pharisees and they said, give us a sign, he said, if you won't believe the Old Testament, you're not going to believe even if you see someone rise up from the dead. And they didn't. So we must read the Old Testament if we wish to know about Christ. Points to and prefigures and prophesies about Christ. So from this series on Solomon in 1 Kings 1 through 11, we're going to study the God-breathed word of God. It will be profitable to us by teaching us how to live, by warning us, by giving us an example, by giving us hope, and by showing us Jesus Christ himself. So that's kind of the what and why of where we're going over the next few weeks. But where? Where does the story of King Solomon take place in the storyline of Scripture? This is always important to understanding the Scriptures. And so the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, well, really, the book of 1 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings used to just be one giant book, uh, but we've broken them up over the years. Um, and so we're going to be looking at 1 Kings. But the book of 1 and 2 Kings, they tell us the story of the Israelite kingdom from Solomon all the way up till its destruction in 589 BC. Uh, so all the way from Solomon, that comes right after David, all the way to the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of God. So what we're going to see in the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings is really uh, the golden age of Israel. This is going to be Israel at its climax. Israel at its most profitable. Israel at its finest. Israel at the top of its game. But by the end of 2 Kings, Solomon's temple has been destroyed. The nation of Israel is split in two. The northern kingdom is completely eradicated. Jerusalem has been burnt to the ground and God's people have been exiled out of the land. And so all of this death and destruction left the people wondering, as they're in exile in Babylon, what, what about all those promises that God made? What about the promises that we read this morning in, in 2 Samuel? What about the promised king, David's son, who would, who would reign forever? What about all of God's claims that he is the greatest of all gods? If that's true, why would he allow his own people to be defeated by a pagan, idolatrous nation? Is there any hope for us? And so it's these questions that the book of Kings, uh, they're kind of circling in the background in the book of First and Second Kings. It seeks to answer these. And through our look at Solomon, we'll begin to see some of these answers. And so that's, that's where we're headed in the next few weeks. Um, so this morning, we're going to jump right in to First Kings 1 and 2. So grab your Bibles, strap in, and hold on tight. And I, I pray that these next few weeks, uh, together, God will reveal himself to us through the preaching of his word uh, in his holy scriptures. So with that, grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings. We're going to be looking at chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And uh, since we're looking at a little bit larger portions, we're not going to hit every single verse in detail. That would be impossible. Otherwise, we could spend six weeks on just, you know, verses 1 through 5. And 
that wouldn't be as fun. So we're going to see the whole story of King Solomon. So the story opens in 1 Kings chapter 1 in the palace of King David. But he's a little bit different than the last time we saw King David. Look at verse 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. That's a good way to put it. If you ever see someone who's old, just call them advanced. That's good. Uh, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. The David who once slew bears and lions with his bare hands is now shivering in a bed, unable to keep warm. The David who once faced down a giant can't get enough blankets. The very same David who led the conquering and fearsome Israelite army and slew 10,000 warriors is now lying in a bed, freezing and oblivious to the things going on in his kingdom. In fact, to truly gauge how weak the king is, look at verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1. It's kind of a subtle implication here. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. I mean, there's no electric blankets, okay? And found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended him. But the king knew her not. So to keep him warm, they hold a beauty pageant, and they bring in the most beautiful woman, and she lays next to the king to keep him warm. Basically, a human electric blanket. And the Hebrew in this passage kind of subtly implies that, that she was sexually available for the king, but the once lust-filled David is too weak and feeble to even know her. There's kind of a subtle dig there that that's how weak the old king is. The mighty David is falling. He's dying a slow death like every other peasant in his kingdom. The message is clear. Even the mighty David is unable to rule Israel for more than a man's lifetime. Even the mighty David will die. As always, weak, inept leadership always creates a power vacuum, and so the kingdom is in danger. See, the kingdom is safe when it's under the power of a strong king, but they don't know what's going to happen next. What will Israel do? Who will take David's place? Who will ascend the throne? Who will God install as the next king of Israel? David hasn't done anything about it so far. Well, one man had the answer to this question. Adonijah, David's oldest living son. Verse 5 tells us this. Look at verse 5 in chapter 1. Now, Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He didn't pause to ask God. He didn't seek God's blessing. He exalted himself and simply declared that he would be the next king. So he gathers an entourage of chariots and soldiers and begins to see who will follow him on his quest to take the throne. Now Adonijah is very shrewd in his choices. Look at verse 7. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest. Now why is it such a genius move? Well, Joab is a general of the army, one of David's finest generals, and Abiathar is a priest, one of David's most, most faithful priests. Joab was the biggest, baddest, meanest soldier in Israel. Uh, just read 2 Samuel, and you'll hear all sorts of crazy stories about this guy. Uh, he, he'll take care of the military side of things for Adonijah, and Abiathar will handle the religious side. So he's got his general, his priest, and in addition to that, both of these men were well known as some of David's right-hand men. What better way to make yourself look like the legitimate heir to the throne than surrounding yourself with those who are loyal to the past king? 
if those people are loyal to you, then everyone else will kind of get in line, right? Just seems to make sense. So he's very shrewd. He's very shrewd. But you see, trouble is brewing because key people do not align themselves with Adonijah. Zadok, one of the head priests, Benaiah, another general, Nathan, one of the key prophets in Israel, Shimei and Ray, and David's mighty men, his closest warriors, all stand against Adonijah. So this is what happened. We're preparing for a war for the throne of Israel. And this is not good. That does not bring stability in the kingdom. So Adonijah decides, I'm king. I'm going to throw myself a coronation party. So he does like any good Israelite would do. He sacrifices a bunch of animals to show how rich he is. He invites all of the elite people and the higher-ups in the kingdom of Judah. But he doesn't invite those who he knows won't support him. So he doesn't invite Nathan the prophet. He doesn't invite Benaiah or any of David's mighty men. And he doesn't invite Solomon, which is interesting because he invites all of his other brothers, all of, other, all of David's other sons he invites, but he doesn't invite Solomon. Now, he's going to claim later that he thought he was the real king and that he had the rightful claim, but there's a reason he didn't invite Solomon. He knows that Solomon is the true rightful heir to the throne, telling omissions. You see, Adonijah is committing blatant treason against God's anointed king. King David is still king, but Adonijah just decides he's old, he's feeble. What is he going to do about it? So he says, I will be king. I mean, you can't just declare yourself king when there's still a king reigning. That is treason. I will be king, he says. But why is that relevant to us? We don't have a king. We're in America. It's the 21st century. We aren't living under Israelite rule. I will be king, though. The words are stunning. The words at the same time sound like the words of a spoiled child, and yet the very words of Satan himself. I will be king was the cry of Satan before he was cast down to earth, God's original adversary. I will be king was, was the attitude and cry of Adam's heart when he decided to take one of the fruit of the garden, even though he knew that God had told him not to. You see, we are living now under God's king and God's rule. His name is Jesus. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he is the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth. See, Jesus has laid a rightful claim to the throne of the universe through his death and resurrection. And now God has exalted his name above every name. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is king. He reigns and rules over all of creation. And so we're left with a choice. Will we humbly submit to God's rightful heir, to God's king, and declare Jesus is king? Or will you join the ranks of Adonijah and Satan himself and cry, no, I will be king? See, the question is, where do your loyalties lie? And let us not be mistaken, just as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, uh, this is not a, just a one-time decision. This is a decision that we must make every day, every moment when you willingly choose to sin, when you reject the authenticity and authority of Jesus' kingship, you say, I will be king. Sin is our feeble and pathetic attempt to subvert Jesus' kingship, to deny his authority. Sin is our attempt to be king, to place ourselves on the throne, to place ourselves in control. I will be king, you cry, when you choose to gossip and slander behind each other's backs. I will be king, you cry when you're harsh and impatient with your children. I will be king, you cry when you're nagging 
and supportive of your husband. I will be king, you cry when you're cold and insensitive towards your own wife. I will be king, you cry when you complain and grumble about the life that God has given you and about your circumstances. I will be king, you cry when you complain and grump, sorry, when you cry when you reject God's word and instead declare that you will choose what is right and what is wrong. I will be king. When we sin, we are no better than Adonijah, a pathetic spoiled brat who foolishly thought he could thwart God's plan. I will be king is the heart cry of all who reject God's true and rightful anointed king, Jesus Christ. It is the cry of all who choose sin over pleasing God, who choose to go their own way instead of submitting to God's king. We've all been there at some point. Maybe some of you are there now. But let none of us this morning continue in this way. As you'll see, it doesn't end well for Adonijah and it won't end well for you. Forsake your sin. Forsake the ranks of the rebellion and submit to the kingship of Christ. The king calls each one of us this morning. And you see therein lies the point of all this. You must truly and humbly submit to God's king to live in God's kingdom. So Adonijah, whose name ironically in Hebrew means Yahweh is Lord, is at his own coronation party. He, now he's outside of the city limits because he's not stupid. He's trying to do this just close enough that people can come and kind of see what's going on, but just far enough away that he might not get in trouble. So he's outside. They're having a party. They've got it all going. He thinks he's done it. I mean, David is weak. He's pathetic. His brothers, besides Solomon, are all on his side. Uh, he's got Joab, who will kill anyone, so that's cool. Um, I mean, Joab is like the equivalent of Darth Vader mixed with the Terminator. He's the worst guy. He, he's the kind of guy that's a villain, but you want him on your team because he'll kind of do anything that's necessary. He's constantly getting in trouble from David because he's just killing people. Um, so he, he's on his side. This is good news if you're trying to take over a kingdom. He's got Abiathar the priest, one of David's most, most faithful priests. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Well, God is not on his side, the maker of heaven and earth, so that's going to be a problem. Uh, now, Adonijah being king would be bad for Israel, according to pretty much everyone, because Scripture tells us, uh, my paraphrase, Adonijah is a terrible person. Um, the author tells us more than once that pretty much all of David's sons were the worst people. Uh, this isn't the first of David's sons to try to kill him and take the throne, by the way. Uh, Absalom, his oldest, uh, was killed by Joab, actually, for trying to kill David and take the throne. So David was a terrible father uh, because he never disciplined his son. Scripture tells us that blatantly here in 1 Kings chapter 1. So my hunch is Solomon was raised by Bathsheba, but that's neither here nor there. The author, so Nathan, the prophet, and Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, David's wife, uh, she's Solomon's mom and David's wife, they hear about Adonijah's plot, and they realize, okay, we've got to do something. Adonijah being king, not only is he not the rightful king, but he's a terrible person. This is not going to go well. So they have to ask fast. Otherwise, they're dead, and the kingdom is the hands of a whiny child. So they come up with their own plot. So first, Bathsheba goes into David's room and begins to explain to him what's going on because, again, he's half dead and oblivious uh, to what's happening. So she basically says, uh, David, um, didn't you swear by God that Solomon was going to be king? 
uh, because I just want to let you know that Adonijah is out there and he's claiming to be king. Um, and as she's saying this, they timed it this way on purpose, Nathan comes in and he gives a similar report. Now we're going to read his report and it comes in 1 Kings 24, chapter 1, verse 24. Uh, look, look at the text here, verse 24. And Nathan said, my Lord, the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and he shall sit on my throne? Uh, for he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle and sheep in abundance and has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Um, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? See what Nathan's doing here. He's, he's inspiring David to act. Um, he knows that David has not appointed Adonijah. But he knows David well enough to spark him into action. And so his words just penetrate into David's soul and give David one last burst of energy. We get to see the King David that we're so used to once again, one last time. Watch how David immediately springs into action. So let's continue reading here in 1 Kings 1, verse 28. Then King David answered. Look how fast he just springs into action. Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May the Lord, my king, may my Lord King David live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So he's calling the priest, the prophet, and the soldier. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gahon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. My, may the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. King David springs into action and says, okay, we have to anoint Solomon right now. And so that's what he does. That's the David we're used to. Like Samson summoning his last bit of strength, David summons what's left of his energy and saves the kingdom from an evil king. So immediately after he tells them what to do, they go right out and do it. Zadok, Nathan, Benaniah take Solomon and they put him on David's mule, which is just a sign that he is now the king. They ride him down with David's, basically David's special forces, his private bodyguard, and anoint Solomon king in front of all the people. And all of Israel joins in the celebration. Look at verse 40. This sounds like a party. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. In other words, they were so excited that the earth itself was split 
because of how loud it was. Now that's a party. But remember, Adonijah is at this time still having his party just outside the city. His big victory party, his coronation ceremony. Now, they hear what's going on in the city, but they, they don't know what it is. They just hear a really loud noise, a party. And so Adonijah is so full of himself that he basically thinks this is good news. Um, he probably thinks Israel is celebrating what he's doing and his new kingship. And as you read the text, you can almost hear, you can feel the tension and you can almost just see their faces change as they learn what happened. So look at verse 41 in chapter 1. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest, came. And look at, look at Adonijah's attitude. And Adonijah said, come in, for you are a worthy man and bring good news. He probably thinks, this is great. They're just going to tell me everyone's celebrating my kingship. Jonathan answered Adonijah, no, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king, and the king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites, that's David's personal army, and they had him ride on the king's mule, and Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Cajon, and they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the whole city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. King David bowed to Solomon. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Okay, this is a huge problem for Adonijah. Basically, they're all dead men. Okay, so look, look at the next verse, verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. <laughs> That's an understatement. They're like, uh, it's time to go. We got to go. Bye. Uh, why? Because this means that they are all guilty of treason, every single person there, and they better get out quick. There can only be one king on the throne, and these guys are on the wrong team. They have already lost. Solomon is king. And so the story continues in verse 50. And Adonijah feared Solomon, as he should. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar in the tabernacle. Then it was told to Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. For behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with a sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar. And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Go to your room. You're in trouble. All right? I mean, that's basically what's going on. Adonijah immediately reacts and runs to the altar in the tabernacle to try and save his own life. This is the only possible way to save his life, and this is the right response in the circumstance. Solomon, like the wise king that he is, grants him mercy. But Solomon also wisely notes that, you know, not everything is what it seems. Time will tell if Adonijah's submission to Solomon's authority is sincere. Is he just simply seeking to save his own skin to just hatch another plot later? If so, Solomon says, he will die. <laughs> 
However, if he is truly repentant and wishes to submit to Solomon's kingship, he will live. It's pretty simple. It's fair. It's mercy. He could have had him just executed right then and there. But you see, it's much the same way with Christ's kingship. There are some who only feign to follow Christ because they're just trying to save their own skin. They're trying to hedge their bets. There might be some of you here today who are, who are thinking like this. You think, well, hey, if I attend church, I don't murder anyone. Like, I'm pretty much good, right? But you don't love Christ. You don't love the king. You haven't submitted to the king. You don't even really want him as king. You're just putting on an outward appearance to try to get in with his good graces. You don't, you just want mercy without sacrifice. You just don't want to really go to hell. I mean, that doesn't sound fun. But friend, it doesn't work like that. Solomon was right in the case of Adonijah. You might be alive for now, but your life will give the true evidence of whether or not your heart is submitted to the king. You can't fake that. Jesus is not going to be fooled by your outward actions, by your outward submissions. He wasn't fooled by the Pharisees. He's not going to be fooled by you. While your heart, your outward actions are honoring him while your heart is still rebelling against him. You can't trick the God of the universe. See, again, you must truly and humbly submit to God's king to live in God's kingdom. That's the message. So Solomon is now king, and Adonijah's coup has been thwarted. And with, his, with this accomplished, the once mighty king David prepares to die. And with his last breath, he gives some final instructions to Solomon. He tells him two things, walk faithfully with God and judge my enemies. And what I want you to see as we read this is that in this, these couple of verses here, it's exposed, the, the problem of, with human kings is exposed. The problem becomes very evident. Look at what David says to Solomon, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. I'm about to die. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Well, so what's the problem? Well, it's simply this, Solomon is not up to the task. In fact, Solomon, even though he's the greatest king in Israelite history and will lead Israel into its climax, its finest point, is going to end in utter failure. No human king could ever live up to this charge perfectly, and therein lies the problem. Even from the very first king of Israel, Saul, to the very last, no human king was ever able to keep the law of the Lord perfectly. It is one continuous cycle of failure after failure after failure, and the people suffer. But God had made a promise, and we heard it in this morning's scripture reading. God had made a promise to David that one day, one day, one of his descendants would ascend the throne, and God would call him his son, and this heir would never falter, never be overthrown, and never be removed, and David's throne would be established forever. One day, a king greater than Solomon would walk the earth. His kingdom would be established, and it would be an eternal kingdom. You see, God fulfilled his immediate promise to David by putting Solomon on the throne. And he fulfilled his ultimate promise, his eternal promise to David, 
by putting Jesus, the Christ, our resurrected King, on the throne. What a glorious truth that we no longer have to hope in human leaders, in human kings, but rather we hope in Jesus, our Savior King. He is on the throne, and you must truly and humbly submit to him to live in God's kingdom. So Solomon is on the throne. But what about his enemies? Do they just get to run free? I mean, what about Joab and all those guys? Well, no, that's what the passage tells us next. What we'll see next is how Solomon handles those who have committed treason against the kingdom. We'll see that the king's enemies must submit to his authority or be judged. The king's enemies must submit to the king or be judged. I mean, and that just makes sense. No good king lets unrepentant, treasonous traitors run free in his kingdom. That's not a peaceful kingdom. That would be bad kingship. That would be injustice. So let's see what happens to Solomon's enemies. Now, we don't have time to read all these passages, but let me just give you the, the quick version of what happens. So Adonijah. What happens to Adonijah? So Solomon gave him mercy, remember? And he said, well, time will tell if you truly submit to my authority. Well, as Solomon probably knew, Adonijah pretty quickly goes back to conspiring to take the throne. So Adonijah, here's what he does. He goes to Bathsheba and says, hey, Bathsheba, can you talk to Solomon and see if he'll give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife? Now, to us, that's like, okay, whatever. But back in those days, to have the concubine or the wife of one of the former kings was essentially a claim to his authority. So he wants to be more associated with David, which is exactly what he had tried to do last time. And now, I don't know why he's dumb enough to think that Solomon doesn't understand this, but Solomon immediately figures out and essentially says, well, you had your chance, you're dead, bud. Um, and he executes him. He commands Benaniah, or Benaiah to strike him down. Adonijah receives justice. He refuses to submit, and it costs him his life. Abiathar. Now, Abiathar the priest received mercy as well. Now, again, all of these people could just, could within the, the, the law, could be executed. They're treason. They're traitors. But Abiathar, the priest, receives mercy as well. Because of his great faithfulness to King David, Solomon simply removes him from the priesthood, but lets him live. Now, this is a great dishonor, but Abiathar had committed great sin. He could have rightly been executed. So Abiathar receives mercy, and he obeys and submits to Solomon. Joab. Joab, Joab. Joab tries to play the fake submission game. Uh, he runs to the tabernacle, just like Adonijah, grabs a hold of the altar, hoping, hoping for mercy, but he receives none. Uh, Joab has sealed his fate a long time ago. I, I mean, again, if you know the stuff that Joab did, you can completely understand why Solomon doesn't even give him a chance. Joab had murdered two of David's best generals uh, in cold blood. Um, Joab had murdered David's son, even when David, David had asked Joab, not to kill Saul, uh, Absalom when he found him. Absalom had rejected David's authority and was trying to kill David. David said, look, when you find him, please don't kill him. Uh, well, Absalom, or Joab found Absalom, and he ran three javelins through his heart, um, then had ten men surround him and cut him up, and then threw him into a grave in the desert. Uh, so he's a brutal guy who just does not listen to authority. So rightfully so, Solomon has him struck down on the altar because Joab could not be trusted. And Solomon knew that his plea for mercy and his, his feigned submission was just that. It was fake. 
He just wanted to save his skin. So Solomon sees this and Benaiah strikes him down. Joab receives justice. Shimei, one of David's oldest enemies, uh, also receives mercy. Solomon simply tells him, look, I'll let you live, but you just can't leave Jerusalem because, you know, he could go out and plot with other people. So Shimei agrees in a formal contract. He agrees on an oath. Okay, I understand. I will not go out. Sure enough, though, when one of Shimei's servants runs away, Shimei goes out to find him in the city of Gath, which, by the way, is a Philistine city. And if people are suspicious, Suspicious of you being a traitor, you probably shouldn't go to one of Israel's most notorious enemies and spend some time in that city. So, again, rightfully so, he's crossed his own word, and Solomon has him slain. Shimei is executed. Justice falls upon him. Now look at the last sentence of chapter 2. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. You see, it was necessary and right for Solomon to distribute justice to the enemies of the kingdom. To be an enemy of the kingdom of Israel is to be an enemy of the kingdom of God. And he had to, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of stability, eliminate the enemies. Now, there was a chance for mercy, but eventually justice came to all who did not truly submit to the king. And this is exactly what I want you to take away from the text this morning. Again, you must truly and humbly submit to God's king to live in God's kingdom. You must truly humbly and submit, truly and humbly submit to God's king to live in God's kingdom. Understand this, Christ is king. King over all, king forever, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he reigns with love and mercy and grace. But there is coming a day when just like Solomon, Christ will finish the establishment of his kingdom. It is not yet, but the day is approaching. Christ is returning, the king is coming, and when he does, the Bible tells us that he will finish the establishment of his kingdom. And just like Solomon, he will eliminate the enemies of the kingdom for the sake of his own people. But you see, friend, he has stalled the full establishment of his kingdom so that his enemies may cease their treason and come to him for mercy. The time of mercy is now. Repent and turn from your trees, and Christ says, throw yourself upon my mercy and you will be saved. You see, Christ the King, unlike Solomon, shed his own blood for his enemies, that they may turn to him, have their treason pardoned, and be forgiven and become part of the kingdom. Would you come to him today? Would you cease trying to be king? Would you stop crying, I will be king, and instead cry, Jesus is king. Acknowledge the perfect, righteous, merciful, and beautiful kingship of Christ. Now, this is the crazy part. God is not only willing to forgive your treason. Okay, Solomon was willing to forgive treason and just kind of put some stipulations on how you could live. God is not only willing to forgive your treason. It's much more than that. Christ, the king, has issued a decree that all enemies who turn from their sin and rebellion and put their faith in him, put their faith in Jesus, will receive forgiveness, will receive his own righteousness, will receive every spiritual blessing, will receive eternal life, and will be adopted into the very family of the king himself, brought into the king's house to share in the inheritance. The decree, the promise, the offer, it's for all traitors of the kingdom. That, that's us. That's us. See, Solomon offered pardon for treason, but God through Christ offers forgiveness and adoption. Come 
to the king, and he will bring you into his home as one of his own children. That's the gospel. Christ has made a way for enemies of the kingdom to become sons of God the Father. It's true. And today, my friends, today is the day of salvation. The time is coming when Christ will finish the establishment of his kingdom. And there will be no more mercy for enemies of the king. Justice will fall. Listen to the words of King Jesus in Matthew 13, 40 through 43. Listen to what he says. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, Jesus, will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. Okay, all enemies of the kingdom will be wiped out. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous, Jesus' people, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. So there's two paths. Forsake your sin and submit to King Jesus and shine like the sun in the Father's kingdom in eternal glory. Or cling to your sin, rebel and cry, I will be king and die in your sins and be cast out of the kingdom. There's no in-between, there's no neutrality. Christ will establish his kingdom. He will destroy his enemies. See, peace and happiness can only be accomplished when its enemies are gone and defeated. Let us long for the day when Christ's eternal kingdom finally comes Eternal peace is ushered in and his enemies are defeated forever. Let us shine together as sons and daughters in the kingdom. How? By truly and humbly submitting and trusting in King Jesus, our Savior King. Words of Jude, at the end of his book, say this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Long live King Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have established and put your Son on the throne of the universe. Lord, I pray for all of us here today that you would help us to submit to the authority of your Son, to the glorious kingship of Jesus Christ, to the merciful and grace-filled kingship of Jesus Christ, to the joyful kingship of Jesus Christ, Lord. Father, this morning we thank you that in your mercy and grace you have made a way for us who were once enemies to become sons and daughters of the King. Lord, we thank you that you have made a way for us to be adopted into your family, to share in the inheritance of Christ the King. What a glorious truth. And so, Father, I pray for those of us here who know that. I pray for those of us here who are sons and daughters. Lord, would you help us to realize that in a deeper and deeper way, Lord, as we battle the sin in our lives, Lord. Help us to forsake that, to see through the deception and to trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those here who are enemies of the King. Lord, bring them to yourself. Adopt them into your family. Open their hearts to see the beauty of Jesus Christ and his salvation. Lord, I pray that they would find forgiveness and grace in his name. 
pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.